0: Have you ever dreamed of paying off your mortgage? (laughs) I know I'd sure like to get rid of mine. But what if you didn't have one in the first place? What if you figured out a way to get through your entire life without ever, ever having to take out a mortgage? My guest today, and no, he didn't just rent. (laughs) My guest today has done just that. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. I thank you for being here. Today is Tuesday, October the 14th, 2014. 10, 14, 2014. Cool date. I am thrilled to bring you today's show, which is an interview with Rob Roy, who's written an entire book called Mortgage Free. I think this is a very, very viable path to financial independence for many people. Years ago, I was browsing around in the library and browsing around the finance section and the real estate section, two of my favorite sections, and I come across this book called Mortgage Free. And obviously, with a title like that, how can I, how can I not pick it up? What I found in there was not the same old tired advice that I'd always read, but a very different approach to finance and a very different approach to housing. And I read the book and really enjoyed it. And I went on and I've done a lot of research in some of the 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 strategies that are espoused by it. Today, I am thrilled to bring you an interview with the author. Uh, His name is Rob Roy. He is an amazing guy. He's got a very great. He's got a really interesting story. And I think that this is one of those strategies. As he walks through in today's interview, he walks through exactly how he has successfully avoided having a mortgage his entire lifetime, and yet lived very well. I hope you enjoy. So Rob, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your being here this morning.
1: Thanks for having me, Joshua.
0: <laughs> so i got to say, I've been excited to talk to you, and I read a lot of books, but ever since I read your book, Mortgage Free, I found it in the library a number of years ago, I always have come back to it as just a very inspiring book, because it seems like you have figured out in a modern era how to live in a somewhat abnormal and atypical manner uh how long have you been without a mortgage
1: um let's see i've never had a mortgage um no i've never had a mortgage we had a land contract we bought our land here in um upstate new york on a land contract which extended over a five-year period and that's the nearest thing we've had to a mortgage wow
0: and how old are you now
1: i 'll be sixty eight
0: soon it 's <laughs> pretty impressive to be sixty eight years old in two thousand and fourteen and never having had a mortgage um, so how do you do it what, what has been your story with home ownership
1: well it 's kind of a, a long story. I actually uh, moved to Scotland when I was about nineteen years old and found uh, an old stone cottage there that I was able to get for um, twelve hundred pounds and um, Actually, that's not right. It was a 1,000 pounds. It was a 1,000 pounds. That was $2,400 in those days. And Harold Wilson was the uh, uh, labor uh, prime minister at that time. Mm -hmm. And there was a government grant program where uh, the government, uh, on houses that required rehabilitation, um, the government would put in half the money, and you would put in half the money. So I actually used, I, I never went to college, I used college funds um, my parents had laid by eight or $10,000 for my college education, and I put in half the money. Harold Wilson put in half the money, and uh, the end of that was I owned my own uh, cottage in the north of Scotland.
2: Wow. Uh,
1: it's a beautiful place today. It's worth over a quarter million dollars today, and we're still friends with the people who uh, who live in it now in the north wow. of Scotland.
0: Were you working there, or just living there, or what did you do? Uh, yeah, you do I, with well,
1: it, it was uh, part of a, uh, my second uh, uh, trip that I'd taken hitchhiking around the world. Back in the days when gee, you could hitchhike right across Asia from Beirut, Lebanon, right through Damascus and uh, Tehran, you know, Baghdad and Tehran, right to Afghanistan. Spent mm-hmm. uh, a wonderful week. Afghanistan was a wonderful country in those days. So, gee, it's like another world uh, a lifetime ago.
0: Wow. So so you lived in Scotland, and then after yep. that, then what?
1: Well, uh, I lived in Scotland for seven years. I met my wife, Jackie, while living in Scotland. Her parents had retired to the north of Scotland, and we wanted to pursue a self-reliant lifestyle, um, which was a little bit difficult there because uh, the government kind of looked after people from cradle to grave. And, you know, I'm a great believer in Thoreau's uh, philosophies, economic philosophies, and he said that the uh, necessaries of life were food, fuel, shelter, and clothing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we were okay with shelter. We had a mortgage-free shelter. Um, clothing wasn't a big problem. Food was somewhat of a problem. We didn't think we could grow enough food on our one-tenth of an acre of land to survive on. Mm-hmm. Later, we learned about French-intensive raised bed gardening, and now we realize we probably could have grown all the food we needed. Wow. Fuel, fuel was a bit of a problem. Uh, we were in the middle of a 600-acre uh, sheep farm, but there were hedgerows uh, and you know ma- major trees around between the fields, and the farmer allowed us to carry home the dead branches, drag them home, cut them up,, uh, and put them in the fireplace well our our parameter of getting this wood uh, perimeter i should say of getting this wood was getting larger and larger, and we were dragging these branches home a mile <laughs> so uh fuel and and food seemed to be a bit of a problem. I still had my US citizenship, so we thought we'd come here and uh, look for land and pursue a homesteading lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So we sold uh Mountridge Cottage, that was the place I'd done up, and we sold it for $26,000, which was clean money because by this time the 3 years uh the conditions of the grant was that you not sell it within 3 years, which I did not. Mhm. And so I had the twenty-six thousand dollars as the grub stake for our our homestead here in northern New York.
0: So you moved from directly from Scotland to from
1: Scotland. Uh, well, the previous year we had done a land search. We'd uh, bought an old Volkswagen camper van, traveled around the country, and the place we ended up with was here in Clinton County, uh, up in the north of uh, New York, almost to almost to the Canadian border.
0: What was the criteria that made that uh, that? Upper New York, the the winner for you?
1: Well, we we like the people. We like the land form. We like the price of land. Uh, Land was cheap uh, here then, and it still is cheap here now. Uh, So that was uh, critical. We were able to um, buy 64 acres, and uh, actually the the owner of the property gave us an option, on another 180 acres uh, at no cost. And then we found that we we put in uh, uh, an ad in Mother Earth News saying we found this land and we're looking for other like-minded people that wanted to pursue a self-reliant lifestyle. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So we went back to Scotland for a year to finish up our affairs there. And uh, we had over 100 people that we were corresponding with. There was a big chart on the wall, and we'd correspond back and forth. And the chart was finally kind of self-eliminating down to about a dozen people, many of which met here on the land and several of which bought um, uh, parcels from the same uh, seller who had given us this option. Wow. And um, most of those people are still here. So after 40 years, we still have the original Murtaugh Hill community is uh, still represented by at least one member of uh, each couple that joined in. There were family breakups. Uh, sure. Oftentimes, um, uh, the stress of building, for example, can put a, a real strain in a marriage, and but there's still one member of uh, almost every couple still here. We have about 50 to 55 people still living here in Murta Hill, which is quite good for an intentional community after 40 years.
0: Did you set out originally with the desire to create a community, or, or was it after the property owner uh, mentioned to you that the land was available, then you just said, well, maybe we'd like to live with some other like-minded people?
1: It was in the, It was on the back burner because on our land search, uh, we wound up in a place for a while called uh, Weedy Rough. It was a community down in Arkansas, and um, we were there with our Volkswagen camper, and we got a job helping to build a log cabin for Joe Mayo of the Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis.
2: Really? And
1: yeah, and um, in fact, that's where we first heard about cordwood masonry, which we can talk about later. But uh, uh, so we liked this uh, community. We were there only about nine or ten days, but we said that would be a rather than try to go it alone and not have the support of uh, like-minded people around you. Let's see if we can uh, form a community, and that's when we then it fell into place with this option on the land. And we said, well, we don't need this 180 acres, but other people can uh, make use of it. So that's when we uh, put the positions and situations uh, in Mother Earth News and started corresponding with people. And others joined us uh, within a year or two after that, and now we have second uh, generation. Our our son and other uh, sons and daughters are living here in the hill in the houses that they built themselves. So, um, and there's a good chance it's going to be third generation soon.
0: Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. How did you go about the actual process of building and developing the land without taking out a mortgage?
1: Well, we had we had our grub stake, which was the twenty six thousand dollars from selling the college. Where does that
0: where does that word come from?
1: Well, it's interesting. The word grub stake, grub, was uh, what uh, a financier would put up for a stake in your holding. Say you were a, a gold uh, prospector in uh-huh. Colorado in the eighteen forties or fifties, uh, you'd go to a financier who would provide the grub in exchange for a stake in your holding. Uh, the grub could be the food, the uh, the mule, uh, the equipment, you mm-hmm. know, and they became a, a silent partner, uh, and that was the grub stake. Now we use the word uh, for the money or materials uh, which are needed to uh, for an owner-built home. Uh, you're going to need some amount of money. Uh, some people have done it for remarkably little, uh, but you're going to need some money. But people often overlook that uh, a good deal on Materials or indigenous materials, materials that are there on the
2: land—wood,
1: mm-hmm. uh, sand, stone, etc.—can be a useful part of the uh, the building process. So, in um, in the, in the uh, when you're looking for land, look at the potential for building of the indigenous materials that are on the land too. But yes, you'll need uh, uh, a certain amount of a grub steak financially to get this whole thing going. In fact, I devote an entire chapter of mortgage free to the grub steak. And procuring and procuring the grub stake.
0: So you started with the twenty six thousand dollars, and yeah. based upon that, you how did you actually go around about buying you know build building the property? What, what techniques well, did you use? Well, as I said,
1: we bought the land on land contract, and I forget the uh, exact uh, price details of it, but it was something like twenty percent down and twenty percent a year for five years. So I think we had. Oh boy, I'm going back a long ways now. I, the original down payment was something in the nature of $5,000, mm-hmm. something like that, five or six thousand dollars, and then we'd pay a uh, couple of thousand dollars a year for the next five years, um, plus interest on the unpaid balance, which was six percent in those days. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so that was part of our money went out. We also uh, bought a, a a brand new Toyota. Pickup truck mm-hmm. as the vehicle to build our house with, and the uh, owner of the agency was trying to win a, a trip to Europe. So he gave us a really rock bottom. He did, and he gave us a rock bottom price of thirty-one hundred dollars. So this is a brand new Toyota pickup truck wow. uh, that we had for years, and that became our workhorse for building not only one but uh, finally three houses here in Murta Hill. But um, uh, so that was another three thousand, and then we built our first house, log cottage. For a total materials outlay for six thousand dollars. Wow! But so we still hadn't used up our twenty-six thousand uh, dollars, and then and then uh, Jackie was also uh, working as a registered nurse here in Plattsburgh, New York, near Plattsburgh, New York. So a little money was coming in as well. Um, yeah. So we built our first place for a materials cost of six thousand dollars, no, no labor cost, and that materials cost cost includes the the excavation for the basement, and a basement is something I would. I would never do again, but um, half our money went into the foundation and basement, and the other half went to the house that was uh, above above grade. I I look at things a little differently today, Um, but that was our first place.
0: Why would you not build a basement today?
1: Well, I'd go the extra mile. Uh, If I'm thinking of uh, basement, I'd rather think beyond basement to what we call earth-sheltered space, and the difference between basement and earth-sheltered space is you got to put a little extra money into things like good light, uh, ventilation, insulation, waterproofness, all these good things. Our second house, for example, was called Log and Cave, and it was an earth sheltered house where your earth berm right up the east and west walls, the north wall,
2: mm-hmm. living
1: roof right over the top, south facing, uh, solar gain, um, and now you've got a warm, dry, bright space instead of a dark, damp, dingy space. Right. The base, the basement at Log Cottage, our first house as I said, cost half the the cost of the house, but it got less than 5% of the use of the space. And it was dark and damp and dingy. Logan Cave, on the other hand, was a much more energy-efficient, warm, bright, dry uh, place. So uh, think think beyond the basement uh, mindset. Think in terms of uh, light, bright, uh, airy, uh, earth-sheltered space. And, and that's what we've been involved with ever since, is cordwood masonry and earth-sheltered housing.
0: I want to explore some of those uh, building design details with you in just a moment. But before I do, so in essence, as I understand the strategy that you lay out in Mortgage Free, my summary of it is essentially commit yourself to saving a certain amount of money to build up your grub stake. Then go and shop for a good deal on land and make sure that you purchase land in a place and in a way that will allow you to build on it yourself without having to – That will allow you to build on it yourself and with the goal of using some of the building techniques that are a little bit easier to do on your own at a lower cost and then build and develop your property slowly over time. Uh, doing the majority of the work yourself is that a fair summary of the strategy?
1: Boy, that's a great summary. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better.
0: <laughs> I distilled your your multi hundred page book down into a couple of sentences. But one of the keys that I liked, however, is that you are focused not on using uh, mainstream building methods, but on using so so. And this is where what's challenging because oftentimes uh, oftentimes Building with the mainstream, you know, with the the current building methods takes a, a great degree of skill and experience, and there is a substantial cost for uh, materials because it's all specialty manufactured and produced. But you're using some of the alternative techniques that are a little bit more natural, a little bit more easily done by yourself. Uh, is that, and then that's, and that's a core part of the strategy, basically, right? Mm hmm. So you specialize in cordwood construction, are there? Uh, but you've also, because I remember you wrote a book on, I think it was timber framing, right? So you have experience with other building methods.
1: Yes, the the timber framing book was called Timber Framing for the Rest of Us, and it's different from traditional timber framing uh, that goes back a thousand years, where you get the finely crafted mortise and tenon joints and uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful craftsmanship and all. The timber framing that we practice is what most contractors, backyard builders, farmers do, which is actually using commonly available mechanical fasteners such as uh, heavy uh, structural screws and Simpson fasteners and these sorts of things. So it's it's strong. It's easy to do. It's not expensive. Uh, I haven't got the skill, the patience, the time, the money. Uh, to go with traditional timber framing, so I just screw it up <laughs>
0: well played I like it
1: <laughs> so question
0: i so i am a i'm twenty nine years old and I have a one year old son and a wife and I live in west palm Beach florida and uh, we have a mortgage on our house and so very mainstream traditional I live in an older neighborhood, but uh, traditional suburbs uh, right in the middle of the city. Is it still po- You did this back in, I guess it must have been the 70s or 80s. Is it still possible in 2014 to do what you did back then and, and pursue a mortgage-free lifestyle with this strategy? Our son,
1: our son, Darren, who's 28 years old, is doing it right now as we're speaking. In fact, after this phone call, I'll be going over and helping him complete the last uh, of his cordwood walls uh, in his house. Uh, in fact, this last cordwood wall um, is is mostly bottle ends. It's uh, it's a shower uh, cabinet with bottles to let the light in. But we're doing cordwood down low, so that's um, <clears throat> that'll be the last panel of his twenty sided uh, uh, cordwood building uh, completed today. And he'll be without a mortgage when all the dust clears. Wow! So yes, it can still be done today. I don't know about West Palm Beach. It's a it's a world foreign to me. It's like another planet to me. Um, uh, costs, uh, land costs, uh, materials costs, availability of indigenous materials are so totally different in a place like that that I don't feel qualified to speak to it. Uh, there's certainly a lot of the uh, the economic philosophies. I mean, you started this conversation by saying uh, that you get mortgage-free at the library. That's a great start. That's where you should get the book. You shouldn't be spending $25 for a book to save money. You should get it at the library. So you're, you've got the right mindset
0: yeah, I've, you know, I've researched as many different uh, strategies as possible before I, before we purchased the house that we live in here. And I just came to the conclusion that it's simply not possible to do where I live in Palm Beach County, Florida, do more than anything to the building codes. And so we, we live in... Uh, hurricane building codes basically is the is the primary thing, and so these codes are very very specific as to what is required to pass the hurricane codes.
1: Right,
0: Continue and load Right, and this that's and so any kind of non traditional structure, uh, you know, there's no way for the engineer and the inspector to be able to come out and say here we're going to uh, we're going to pass this structure. And just due to the nature of the regulation here locally, it's just, it's astounding what you have to go through. And, and, it- so I just came to the conclusion that it's just simply not possible, and I, I I don't see any way unless there's I think is it Houston or it's not Dallas it's one of the one of the big um, Texas metro areas I know doesn't has minimal building codes but it seems like most of the urban areas that's going to be the primary issue is getting around the government regulations. Do you not have building codes where you are, or is they there just, are
1: building codes? They vary a great deal from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, some some uh, Towns or counties are much, much stricter than others here in northern New York. For example, our Murtaugh Hill Road is actually the town-line road between two towns. On one side of the road, they're quite strict, and the guy is with you every bit of the uh, process uh, from start to finish. On our side of the road, uh, the the building permit involves filling out a a three-page, eight-and-a-half-by-eleven sheets of paper, handing the guy $20, and never seeing him again in your life. So it's it's totally, totally uh, different. Now, it occurs to me in your situation that you've got uh, an equity that you could use in the home that you've got in West Palm Beach, and uh, maybe you could use that equity as a grub stake to to find a place where um, land is cheap and and, and building codes are more suitable, and maybe you have indigenous materials. It depends whether whether people are in a job where they can relocate, and so many people are now. My wife, uh, Jackie, uh, she's a registered nurse. She can work anywhere. Um, a lot of people working in computers or maybe in the uh, um radio industry you can do your job from anywhere i don't know but people that can relocate can take advantage of a of the grubstake derived from uh, an artificially high value in west palm beach and and put that in a place like northern maine wisconsin or new york for cheap land
0: right Yeah, we definitely could do that. The reason we live in West Palm Beach where we live is because of the community of friends and family and church and the community that we're a part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I just simply have made the decision to with a good attitude, do all I can uh, it, to live as intelligently as possible where I live and we've got a really great uh, we've got a really great setup we 've got a, a about a half acre of land but it 's right in the middle of the city We can walk to the grocery store we can walk to the library we can walk to all of these things 're all within within about half a mile of our house, but we live in kind of this tucked away Quieter part of town that many people don't know exists, and so I'm just working with the property that I have to try to increase it, to try to homestead it in a way. And, yeah, I
1: think that's great.
0: And so trying to to do my best to work on the energy efficiency of the problem, to be more self reliant, to be, to get some you know some food production into the into the into the backyard, and, and it's just a <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> and it takes a lot of time. <laughs>
1: Well a half acre is a substantial amount of uh, property for growing food. Jackie and I have been involved lately in what we call raised raised beds.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: These are raised beds. Uh, we're in our late sixties, so we like to work at uh, you know thirty two inches off the ground instead of having you know getting down right down on the ground itself so um i've been I've been building these raised raised beds, which we like a lot and you can grow it with a French intensive raised bed gardening method, you can pack an awful lot of stuff in these uh, a few square feet.
0: Tell me about cordwood masonry. What is it, and why do you, why did you go to it? What advantages does it bring over other building
1: methods? Well, cordwood masonry is the building of a, of a substantial wall, a thick wall of short logs called log ends. And these log ends are laid transversely in the wall, much like a rank of firewood is stacked.
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: gives it the exceptional thermal uh, characteristics is that the mortar joint um, is not continuous through the wall. There's an insulated space between the inner mortar joint and the outer mortar joint. So as you approach the wall, it looks like a cross between a stone wall and a, and a stack of wood. Uh, it has the appearance of stone masonry, but you, when you get up close, you see that it's not stone. It's, it's log ends that you're looking at. But the mortar joint doesn't go all the way through the wall. If it did, it would conduct heat or or cool, if you like. Conduct the cold. the same as conducting heat. Um through the wall, and you'd be bleeding the heat out of the house in North Country winter. So the insulated space allows you to uh, keep it uh, warm in the winter, cool in the summer, and the house stays a a good steady temperature. There's so much mass, particularly in the inner mortar joint, uh, that it takes a long time for the internal temperature to change. So uh, the net effect is insulation is one thing, and it's important, but thermal mass is equally important, and the juxtaposition of, insulation and thermal mass is critically important. So here we've got the thermal mass on the correct side of the insulation where we can control the temperature of it. We can control its heat. We can control its cool. Cool is my word for heat at a lower temperature. So the house is a nice steady temperature. Up here we build walls 16 inches thick. In Canada they build them anywhere from 18 to 24 inches thick, the walls.
0: Do you also incorporate solar design into into your house as well?
1: Oh, yes. I, I can't imagine why anybody would not do that, given an opportunity, providing they haven't got a, uh, a high-rise in front of them, stopping the solar gain. Um, interestingly, in some parts of the South, like Mississippi, Alabama, and these places, it actually makes more sense to orientate the house north, because right. cooling is the more important energy consideration. But here in the north, uh, we're, we're um, wanting to take advantage of the sun, And so we orientate the house in a generally southerly direction. It can be a little bit west of south to get even more solar gain. But we also earth shelter the house. So our house is a a large, round, cordwood masonry house. Sixty percent of the walls are cordwood masonry. The other 40 percent are earth-sheltered. And that 40 percent, which is earth-sheltered, and this is what's different from a basement, is on the north side. Um... The walls are waterproofed and insulated on the exterior, so I can control the temperature of the mass fabric of the walls in our sheltered space. So it's tantamount that we're building the house in South Carolina instead of northern New York in terms of the climate from which we're beginning to heat and cool it.
0: Wow. Is cordwood most appropriate for a certain climate?
1: It's been used in all climates, um, I've seen it in Belize, for example, in Hawaii, Big Island, Hawaii. Um, It's in the south. Uh, In in my book, Corded Building, there's uh, one chapter written by a guy in uh, West Columbia, Texas. There's uh, some nice ones just over the Florida line in Georgia. Back in uh, Florida, back in the 30s, there were uh, these cookie houses, they were called, and they were built of things like swamp cabbage and pine, uh, that were quartered houses basically, and there's still one uh, that's kind of a museum somewhere. I Don't don't ask me where because I can't remember. But these cookie houses were popular in Florida in the 30s. But yes, they're, they're still built in the South. Most of them are built in the North, however. Uh, Wisconsin is certainly the hotbed of quartered masonry construction, but there's a lot of it throughout Canada, from British Columbia right through to the Eastern provinces, a lot in Ontario and Quebec, for example. Uh, New York has quite a few, uh, uh, Michigan Minnesota. North Carolina is pretty popular. If you were
0: trying to set out to build a a house where you're strongly focused on energy efficiency and you were doing a survey of some of the, I don't know what to call them. I don't like calling them alternative building. Well, methods.
1: Green, green building. Okay. maybe.
0: So green building methods. So whether that's, you're looking at, uh, and, and, you, you would know more of these than I would, but you're looking at cordwood, you're looking at straw bale construction, you're looking at, um, I don't know what it would be. Rammed earth. Um, you're looking Cobb. at cob. uh, how would you could you give a survey because you you know far more about this than I do? Could you give a survey of some of the green building methods that are available and some of just the advantages disadvantages, how somebody would look at them and start to sort through which ones might be helpful and appropriate for them
1: Well first and foremost, I think you've got to uh, go back to the basic adage of build with what you 've got you don't want to be uh, sending um, uh, for materials 1,500 miles away, when you've got perfectly good materials that you can build with um, uh, yourself uh, nearby. For example, it does, straw bale doesn't make too much sense for us because we have to go hundreds of miles to get the appropriate straw bales. But we've got any god's amount of uh, uh, cedar cordwood here right. that we can use. Uh, same if somebody's out in the uh, Kansas wheat field. Uh, maybe the straw bale is going to make more sense to them than the uh, the cordwood. Cobb is where you make walls of sand clay and chop straw as reinforcing binder. But if you haven't got a good source of uh, pure clay, because it's about 20% clay, then cob is not an option to you. For us, for example, we had to go quite a few miles away to get enough cob just to build a small cordwood panel with uh, cordwood and cob as an experiment. So cob is not a good option for us either. Uh, we just got back from Maine, Jackie and I. Uh, we went up to the Common Ground Fair up there, and we did a cordwood workshop. And and, gee, as far as you can see, there's good, appropriate wood for a uh, horizontal log home, if you want, or a corded masonry building. So, again, um, use what you've got, and your land may yield the what you need. You, you, you mentioned rammed earth, and then there's also um, sandbags that you can fill. Gee, you could build a house on the moon if you bought uh, plastic bags that you could fill with right. the uh, uh, the sand that was on the moon.
0: So that's your primary design consideration then is what's available around you what can you harvest locally so that you don't need to bring in the cost and also the so that you're building in a locally appropriate manner. That's right. Really does bother me because I you know I've traveled a lot across the country and it just seems a little silly to me that if you <laughs> just got back from Colorado a couple months ago and just I just actually just last last month drove across the the country and if you go th- throughout our throughout the US i mean the the construction styles look Almost identical you see us you, you drive through a, a suburban development in, in Florida and it 's practically identical to a suburban development in Denver and it's practically identical to a suburban development in Pennsylvania maybe a few architectural differences I noticed in Pennsylvania there's a much greater emphasis on the craftsman style and you know more of the plant and then you come through the south and you see the plantation style a little bit more and then here where I live there's much more of the Spanish influence but practically speaking there's little consideration given to the design, designing for the climate. And that frustrates me, because it doesn't make any sense to me that a house in Florida should look identical to a house in Maine. And so maybe some of these kinds of, maybe that is, I I hadn't really considered that as being a primary design characteristic um, as far as materials, but that makes sense to me.
1: Well, you're also talking about, I think, uh, you're looking at neighborhood uh, kind of uh, housing developments where a contractor is building dozens of the same kind of thing. So he's looking for something that he can uh, uh, assembly line, that his crew uh, is used to doing. Uh, each one might be a little bit different. Sometimes they're not very much different, but sometimes a properly built subdivision will have, each house will be a little bit different, which is nice. Um, but they're using techniques that the the, the tradesmen are used to doing. Um, you mentioned that uh, these same types of houses are found all over the country. I submit they're, they're found all over the world. Uh, and you also mentioned the differences of uh, some of the older styles, like your uh, Spanish influence. Obviously, if you go to the Southwest and Taos, New Mexico, you're going to see the um, influence of Adobe and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the basic, certainly 90% of the houses built in this country are very, very similar. Uh, they main one size doesn't fit all either. Uh, uh, simple thing like orientation. Uh, which direction the house faces? We have a town near us with a uh, uh, planning ordinance, not a building code, but a planning ordinance that says the house must be built parallel to the road. Really? Uh, now wait a minute. Which which direction is this road facing? In right. Uh, a, a, a town with a regulation like that could be costing these people thirty to forty percent more in energy cost if they build their house, quote unquote, parallel to the road. So I build them round, and they're parallel to the road, no matter which way it runs.
0: So you, you you touched on energy costs, and that's exactly where I was going to go next. Talk how much does your cost does your home, the current one you're living in, how much does it cost you on an annual on whatever basis you track it annually to provide for your utilities, for your water, for your electricity, things yeah. like that in northern in northern New York.
1: Well, that one I can't answer because we deal with that every year. Every year, um, we buy most of our firewood now. As I said, I'm in my late 60s. I do derive some firewood from improving the forest, cutting down the dead trees, you know, bringing them home, just like we were doing in Scotland 40 years ago, dragging Mm -hmm. all the dead branches and cutting them up. We still do that. But I buy probably 80, 90 percent of my firewood. And it costs me, this year it's going to cost me $840 for my firewood to heat this place through the winter. So that's my total heating cost, is $840. Wow. Uh, and that's high um, when I was doing more of it myself, and firewood price has gone up a little bit, but for years and years we were averaging three to five hundred dollars a year for firewood, and that's our sole heating plus what we get through the windows for solar gain. Mm-hmm. Remember that by earth sheltering it we're putting it in a more favorable uh, ambient temperature from which we begin to heat so we're we're at forty degrees above zero instead of twenty below as far as our starting temperature from which we begin to heat mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, electricity, we're off the grid. We make all our own electricity. So our electrical cost is roughly the amortization of the batteries. So that's about – we replace the batteries about every 10 years. So you're looking at $80 a year for batteries, and that's our electrical cost. Uh, now now that this – you know, once once your system is paid for, I suppose our system – it's worth today to re- replicate our system today it would probably cost somebody around $6,000.
0: Are you using photovoltaic panels? Or use are you using- photovoltaic
1: panels, okay. yes. I used wind energy for many years, um, but I, when I get into my 60s, I get bored with climbing the 108 foot tower uh, <laughs> to repair the thing, which would normally happen around this, the sh- shortest day, this December 21st, <laughs> when it was below zero. And uh, a, a friend of mine said, Rob, you know, Uh, if you had another 500 watts of panels, you wouldn't need that wind plant. Mm -hmm. So uh, another friend had 450 watts of panels sitting in cardboard boxes that he was not using yet. So he said, well, we borrow ours. So we set up his panels, and gee, we were laughing. We didn't need the wind plant. So my first friend was absolutely right. And then we had a chance to pick up uh, 720 watts of panels at at a great price. They were, believe it or not, on the end of a dock... In Miami Beach. Really? And, yeah, they were made in Massachusetts, evergreen panels, and they were going to be shipped somewhere, and the deal fell through. And this guy that we knew in Pennsylvania was buying the whole lot of them, $24,000 worth of them, and we agreed to buy, uh, I think, $4,000 worth of stuff from him. So (laughs) then a crane falls on the dock. And nobody can get to the end of the dock to, to get these panels, which are out on the end of the pier. And we thought we'd lost our investment. The, the other guy thought he'd lost his $24,000. We thought we'd lost our $4,000. And after six months or so, they finally get those panels, and, and, the, and we're using those today, and they're great. We love them.
0: Wow. So $80 a year and $840 a year, are yeah, you... And then
1: there's The third thing I must must mention, to be fair, is propane gas. Okay. We use propane gas for things that, if you use electric, would be a high... You couldn't do with photovoltaics with an off-the-grid battery system. For example, you can't heat. You can water heating. It's got a heating coil in it. Uh, electrical baseboard heating. Uh, a large refrigerator, which has a, a heater going constantly in it. So these kinds of things we use propane gas for. Propane gas is a much more efficient way to heat water, to heat food, to run your refrigerator, so we do those things with propane. But all our lighting, small appliance circuits. Jackie's sitting next to me here right now. She's on her computer, and we got our lights on, and and all this comes from the battery system.
0: Any idea what your annual propane costs are?
1: Uh, what's the annual propane cost here? Would you say, Jackie, seven, eight hundred dollars, something of that nature? Mm-hmm. She thinks it's gone down to around five hundred dollars a year now, but it's somewhere between five and seven, eight hundred dollars, somewhere in that range. It varies a bit because the price of propane goes up and down.
0: Do you? Um, and I, and I'm curious because and the reason I'm, I'm probing is so I work as a financial planner, and one of the things that I often think about is I try to figure out what the actual costs are. So so there are two ways to there are two ways to basically, in my mind. To not have to work for money. And number one is have a large investment portfolio of some kind that's producing enough dividends and interest that can support your lifestyle where you can buy the things that you need to live your life or simply to buy the things that you need to live your life. And not have need for the uh, to to build a large nest egg, so to speak. Uh, and probably what's practical is probably do a to do a combination of those things. So, do you and your wife do you consider yourselves retired?
1: No, uh, but you've missed a major thing there. Those are two good ones that you mentioned, but I think uh, a third one is. Uh, <laughs> Every every time that you can do something for yourself instead of paying somebody else to do it for you, there's a tremendous uh, saving, whether it's building your house, repairing the house, because you're the best one, a place to do that, or or uh, growing your own food, uh, all the things that you can put your value into, your so sweat equity, you're not charging yourself for your own labor. I, I say a dollar saved is worth a lot more than a dollar earned because mm-hmm. we have to earn so darn many of them to save so precious few. Mm-hmm. And you, you look at people, if they're a really good saver, somebody at a regular job, it's extraordinary if they can save 10% of their income.
2: Mm-hmm. As Ameri-
1: matter of fact, Americans today are net energy, net uh, uh, negative savers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if somebody can save 10%, we'd say, gee, that's that's pretty good. Uh so what does that make a dollar a dollar saved worth? Well, you had to earn. If if you're a good saver, you had to earn ten to save one. If I find a dollar in the sidewalk, what's that dollar worth? It's ten dollars I didn't have to earn. Right. So if I can save a dollar by doing something myself, that's ten dollars I didn't have to earn to save that dollar. You see? Right. It's a whole a whole different economy
0: it 's a powerful concept, and we just don 't usually we 're not I, I was never trained to think uh, in terms of well let me let me i don 't want to that 's actually not correct. I often rejected that line of thinking when I was younger you know my father would train me to to do things myself, but i had a I had a mindset of well i 'll just go and I you know i', I do better at earning money i 'll just go and and um, <laughs> i 'll just go and earn more money and i 'll pay someone else to do to do things for myself. And I think, you know, so I've, I've had to work hard to kind of overcome some of that. And It's probably a balance somewhere because there's always this, this constant tussle between doing things myself versus hiring someone else versus what's the highest and best use of my time. Right. Do you apply your philosophy always to simply doing it yourself or do you? Oh,
1: no, no, no. For example, I'm not about to, uh, um, I, I, my son in Colorado will do this, but I, I'm not going to do my own brakes in the car. We're, we're about to get our brakes done in the right. car. I'm not going to go take my car apart and and fix the brakes, right. but but my son in Colorado would do that. So we all have our lines to draw in that sort of thing. But uh, there's a lot of things that that uh, people can do for themselves and save a tremendous amount of money in in doing it. Or or just um, for example, we talked about the grub stake. and to 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 put aside the money you need for this. Uh, uh, Adventure called building your own house. You have to lay by this money, so you you go on a kind of a materials fast to save money. So uh, somebody goes out to eat and go to a movie. Uh, they go to a couple goes out to dinner. They go to a movie. It's easy to drop eighty eighty dollars or so, maybe a hundred dollars sure. in that evening. Well, that was uh, if they're good savers. That was eight or eight eight hundred dollars they had to earn to be able to save the eighty dollars that they had. To, for the free money to go out to eat, so by not doing that and and staying at home and and hiring a movie, they maybe get away for ten dollars, and that's uh, seventy dollars saved, and that goes towards the grub stake. I've had people read mortgage free, and then go on a, a materials fast and report to me about how uh, they make a game out of it, and they save a lot of money in a couple of years' time. Uh, one one couple from Wisconsin got out of debt in two years. They were out of debt, and they were saving money, and they actually saved enough money to go to Australia for a while, came back, built their own home. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it really is a different mindset altogether.
0: In our society, there seems to almost be just two very different uh, ways of looking at it. When you actually, in, in many ways, our society is very stressful. So oftentimes, many many of us are looking to treat our stress And so this leads often to a high-consumption lifestyle, and we feel that in order to treat our stress that many times we deserve more and we do more and we spend more, and life can be very expensive. But if you actually look at the quality of entertainment that somebody who has almost no income can enjoy – I mean, you can go and you can buy a – uh, you know you can go and buy a used tablet computer for a very small amount of money. You can toss Netflix onto there and you can have better entertainment that was then was available to the to the richest person in the world you know thirty years ago uh, because you can have Media streamed and entertainment streamed from all over the world. You can read thousands of books on there for completely for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got this, once you actually kind of step out of it a little bit, you can entertain yourself in a way that is amazing and is amazingly low cost, but you have to identify the opportunity and, and pursue it. Yeah. Um, can't, argue, can't argue with any of that. I wanted to ask one other question on water. Are you collecting rainwater, or do you have a well? How do you handle your water and septic needs for your house? We
1: do have a well. Um, It's a uh, well dug by a track excavator. We had a, a water dowser come in, identify the location of the water, It's a beautiful, almost artesian well. That is to say, it doesn't bubble out of the ground. My son's does down below. Uh, He's just below us here, really, and he actually has water uh, bubbling uh, into a. We've made a big uh, cistern for it, and the water bubbles out of that, and it's beautiful, uh, cold, clean spring water. Um, So we do have uh, our well is about 28 feet deep. The static level is about 15 feet. So we can pump it into the house with a bicycle pump. That is to say, the the bicycle is married to a double action piston pump, and really? we actually we actually used to do that all the year round, and now we just do it from in the dark quarter of the year when we're not making as much energy. So from first in November to February, I get down on the bicycle and I I pump every day and uh, fill the cistern with the bicycle pump. Wow! And that's because it's a it's a shallow. Uh, um, well. it's it's less. It's, uh, the static level is less than 20 feet. When you get up over 20 feet, now you need a different type of a pump to do the same job. You need something like a pump jack to do it, but that can be done too. So that's how we get our water. Our son in Colorado does not have a well, and he does collect the rainwater off of his metal roof. He has an earth-sheltered house there, but he collects the water off a metal roof into two 2,000 gallon cisterns, and he always has plenty of water.
0: How long does it take you during the time when you are supplementing your panels? How long do you need to ride the bicycle to provide your day's water?
1: Well, typically it's uh, about four minutes twice a day. And if Jackie's doing a wash, um, this is a 25-gallon cycle for each. You know, Each of the wash cycles is 25 gallons. So I, I pump about six gallons a minute. So for each cycle, I'll go down and I'll pump for four minutes for the next cycle. And then uh, there might be, how many cycles are there? Uh, on the washing machine two or three <laughs> basically, two. basically two cycles okay. so it, that that a day that she's doing the wash that's going to add like another eight minutes of, of pumping but gee if i do it for another 32 years i will live to be 100 <laughs> exactly
0: well i just uh, you know i think of of going to the gym and they put the uh you can if you go to the gym you, you can turn any Ride the stationary bike. You can have it illustrate the amount of and power you're, not you're doing putting any out, work. right? And you're not using the power for anything. It's just all this mental construct. But it, you're actually using the power.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> um, I used to use it year round, um, but about almost three years ago now, at Heathrow Airport in London, I got slammed by a, a big red London bus. Oh wow! Yeah, and it, it broke my pelvis, my arm, my finger, and I broke the bus. Uh, and that that was the end of my water pumping days for a while uh, up until that point i i Jackie and I had always pumped all the water into the house for over thirty years and um, then our son Rowan came back from Colorado and he married a uh, an electric motor to our pump because you know, I couldn't pump i was I couldn't move and uh, but now i'm back I'm back hundred percent again and doing everything I used to do but uh, that that changed it to being all bicycle pump to electric and bicycle.
0: What about It takes, for about
1: 40, your... takes about 45 seconds to switch it over. Wow. You take the belt off and you put the chain on and you're, you're way to go.
0: What about for your septic system? Are you using a traditional... We,
1: we have, in New York State, you are allowed to compost humanure. Mm-hmm. However, strangely, you must still have a New York State approved septic system. Really? So they don't mind if you use your compost, but you still have to have the septic system. In some places, for example, the Adirondack Park of New York, which is a large so-called park in the middle of the state, about the size of the state of Vermont, in the, in the Adirondack Park you have to identify not only your, your drain field, but an adjacent uh, another drain field for use when the first one fails. Huh. So now you've used twice as much of the land surface to compost humanure, and not even compost it, but just to get rid of it. Uh, better is, in fact, to compost it.
0: So do you? Do you guys do you compost it, or do you use the? We septic
1: have system? some of our. Uh, we have guest houses at the building school here. We run a building school uh-huh. in Northern New York, and we have four guest houses, and we have two composting toilets. And um, again, our son in Colorado, and our son here, uh, the one that's building next to us. They're all using the Joe Jenkins humanure uh, composting system.
0: Yeah, I read his book. It was excellent.
1: Yeah, you know, Joe's quite a friend of ours. He he, he makes it entertaining to read.
0: <laughs> he certainly does when you're dealing then, with probably the subject that <laughs> would cause more people to be uncomfortable. He deals yeah, with it in a very it, funny way. It's <laughs>
1: a simple system. It's basically poop in a bucket.
0: Right, right. Right, yeah, I've threatened my wife. Uh, I've threatened my wife with it, but I haven't followed through on it actually yet. But uh, who knows? You never know. <laughs> um, entrepreneurship. What was your path to doing the building school? Was it with a goal of just you would solve the need and wanted to share your knowledge? Or Was it you wanted to make money? Or what, what's been your path through entrepreneurship?
1: Well, I've always been a teacher. Um, I had my own water ski school in Massachusetts years ago. Uh, I taught uh, I taught uh, algebra and geometry uh, in high school. I've always been a writer. And when it came to building a corded masonry house, there wasn't any information out there, uh, written information. Uh, Jackie and I actually traveled up into uh, Ontario one day with a friend, and uh, we looked at some old corded masonry houses that people were gracious enough to show us. But on the way back down from Ontario on a Sunday afternoon, we came across a farmer, Laying up a cordwood barn, and he was gracious enough to share what he knew extra lime in the mortar and this sort of thing. And um, I realized that it needs to be a book uh, to, to tell people how to do this. And I knew how to write, and uh, I knew how to teach. So it started out with the book, and then I started teaching at uh, the Mother Earth News Echo Village in in North Carolina. I was teaching earth sheltered housing down there, actually, uh, three, four years uh, after we built our first house. And um, then I wrote a book on earth sheltered housing, and now uh, uh, we've written 15 books now. The last one is called The Coincidental Traveler that Jackie and I wrote together, and it's kind of the mortgage-free of travel. So uh, the, the subtitle is Adventure Travel for Budget-Minded Grown-Ups, which is us.
0: What are some of the strategies that you explore in that book?
1: Well, some of the strategies in that one are similar to what you get in mortgage-free, uh, first of all, extend yourself. It's possible to cultivate coincidence. You can create things happening by extending yourself. You can do this in building. You can do it in travel. Uh, you've got to let your 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 need be known. Um, for, for example, and in low cost travel, we travel chicken buses, for example, in Central America. And not only do you get to really see uh, the country from uh, the local point of view. But you'll meet wonderful people who will and you extend yourself and they extend yourself and pretty soon instead of staying in a hotel you're staying in somebody's private home somewhere right we've 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 this has happened oh uh couch surfing is something that Jackie and I have joined, and we're in our sixties and and uh, um couch surfing enables you to stay with people all over the world for free as a matter of fact, it's against the rules of couchsurfing to charge anyone to have them stay with you, so you might contribute to take them out to eat or contribute to the you know household. Sure. Uh, food stuffs and all. But we just recently went to Ecuador and, and stayed with local people in, uh, in Quito and in, in uh, uh, Cuenca. And we've spent a night uh, couch surfing in a tent on top of a 14,000 foot mountain in Ecuador. Wow. So th- these are the kinds of things that. Uh, uh, another uh, strategy that Jackie and I employ is called uh, taking advantage of ourselves. As I said, we haven't retired yet. So we teach cordwood masonry all over the world. Uh, So our our cordwood teaching has taken us to Tasmania, uh, New Zealand, Chile twice, uh, Labrador. We we taught with the Innu people in Labrador last year, Uh, Alaska, Hawaii twice. Um, We've worked with Mapuches in in Chile, and uh, uh, it's it's just uh, everybody is something. Uh, You don't have to be a cordwood teacher. You could be a tennis player, a quilter. You've got friends all over the world that you haven't even met yet. Just Google quilting, and you'll come up with 35 quilting societies in New Zealand that tells you when they meet, who the person is that runs it. Uh, you contact this person, and, oh, coming down from North America, stay with us while you're down here in eye So, you, you know, you, you've, you've got instant friends all over the world, and all you have to do is uh, extend yourself. And it's so easy today with the Internet to do that.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I noticed this years ago. I I used to be a member of Toastmasters International, and my thought, I said, man, if I ever... Or to travel, the first thing I do is just find the local Toastmasters club, show up, you know, sit through their club, and Absolutely. you automatically have this connection, That's and great. you'll make some friends, and and you'll probably get a couple of dinner invitations. You may get an invitation. You'll you just make some friends and build a community, and then you don't have to deal with... Uh, I don't really enjoy being a part of the tourist infrastructure, no, no, no. but I enjoy traveling, and I love to take people who come and visit me. I love to take a day off and take them and show them around. It's really fun for me. And so the same thing for other people all around the world.
1: Well, uh, you'll need to get um, the coincidental traveler.
0: I think I will. I've I enjoyed. To, go uh, to our
1: website. <laughs> it's the first book on our books and media page on our website.
0: And the website is cordwoodmasonry.com. That's right. You've been watching this, and I don't want to. I don't know the word to use. I'm trying to find a descriptive word. Uh, it seems so stupid to say an alternative lifestyle or whatever. But you've been watching cultural shifts. Let's 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 pose the question in that manner. You've been watching cultural shifts happen uh, over the last at least 40 years, uh, whether it was from the 70s back to the land movement up through today in 2014. What have been your observations from the perspective of having watched and been involved in these cultural shifts? Are people moving more toward the kind of lifestyle that you teach? Are people moving away from it? Is it a mixture? What have you observed culturally speaking over the last 40 years?
1: Not much difference percentage-wise. I think this is going to appeal to a certain kind of people, and I don't think their percentage has changed a great deal from the 70s up until the present day. I'm always thinking, oh, wow, this thing is going to reach critical mass and it's going to take off, but it never does. And I don't know what members uh, would be interested in living the way that we do, Uh, but certainly it's a small percentage. It's significant, but small. Uh, ten percent, something like that. I'm guessing here, uh, but not a great deal of change. Has always been. We just came back from the Common Ground Fair in Maine, and we were very impressed with how many people are interested in organic farming and building and stuff like this. But it's it's in a certain area that uh, is uh, conducive to that sort of thing. Um, you know, occasionally travel to places like where you live, and there it's going to be very much fewer people. Are are into those sorts of things. So uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I think the world would be better off if we were uh, not such great consumers, but rather conservers of uh, uh, of things instead of consuming them. Um, uh, just to di- digress for a moment, uh, in Europe they have an equal standard of living by the, all the things that standard of living measures uh, on half the per capita energy consumption that we have in the United States. It strikes me that that means that we must be wasting half of it.
2: Right.
1: That's true. So uh, certainly, Jackie and I in our household, we perhaps consume 10% of the energy of the typical American household. So if people lived the way that we do, uh, we'd be net exporters of energy. We wouldn't have to go bombing other countries for their oil and things like that. Right. We'd be self-reliant. So I perhaps digress a bit from the original question, but I, I don't see a great uh, change the, the, the same amount of people are still interested, have the the desire, the imagination, the wherewithal, uh, whatever it takes, and the cuja kuja to uh, to pursue this lifestyle and happily too. And and some some try it and they decide it's not for them.
0: Why do people not want to pursue the lifestyle? Why do people it, try it and decide it's not for them?
1: Uh, it, it didn't work out for them. They they got themselves into a sticky wicket. Uh, things weren't going well. They were living uncomfortably. Uh, living in a construction zone, the family breaks up. Uh, uh, as Zorba calls it, the full catastrophe. Right. Um, we had some of that here on Murta Hill in our community. We had family breakups, and um, yeah, it's not an easy. Uh, it's not an easy lifestyle. We look at our son right now. The way he's living is like Jackie and I like like we were living thirty five years ago. You know, um, still the. The composting toilet and no hot water in the house yet, and things like that. It's hard to believe. And yet, when you think about it, he's living with clean water. He's got basic electric. He's warm. Uh, he's better off than what would you say, seventy-five percent of the people on this planet.
0: Right, right. Some of it must. I think a lot of these things. There's a big mental shift that that can happen, and it, probably I don't. I mean, I don't want to comment broadly on cultural perspectives because people are individuals and they're unique but i think that even for me and for my family my hope is that we can train ourselves to be resilient and flexible and i remember an experience that i had when i was traveling in central america i lived in nicaragua with a very poor family way out in the sticks for a week and this uh, family was was very gracious to host me it was part of an organized um Tour I was doing with school, and it was prearranged that I would stay with them for a week. And they were very gracious to host me. But the village, excuse me, the village that we were living in, uh, I had no, there was, it was just very poor. And I remember when we got to Nicaragua, we were traveling from Costa Rica to Nicaragua. And the first few days in Nicaragua, we stayed in some hostels. And the hostels did not have hot water. Mm-hmm. And that was the worst experience for me ever. And I just remember I couldn't stand taking a shower. I would just grip my teeth, mm-hmm. and I would turn the water on, and I would be done in about 90 seconds. Soap up, rinse off, be done, just shivering the whole time. Mm-hmm. Well, then I went out in the, uh, in the campo with, in, with the... Uh, uh, with this Nicaraguan family, and in this situation, we, you know, the the, the toilet was a uh, was a, a concrete pad with with about three foot walls around it right in the middle of the, of the, uh, of the development, uh, an outhouse without a house on it. Uh, then, and the shower was basically a shower enclosure made with uh, flour flower sacks. It was about three foot, three feet high and a five gallon bucket of water. So yeah. I took, I took one shower and that worked fine. And, uh, I wasn't, uh, I've, I've since learned how to shower much better in those conditions and enjoy it. No big deal. But at that time I was still kind of young. I was, I was, not confident, So I took one shower, and then I didn't shower the rest of the time. So by the end of the week, I was just ready for a shower. Well, we pick up and we get out of that city and we go in the bus to, I don't remember the town, it may have been Granada or something like that in Nicaragua. And I remember getting to the hostel. And we get to the hostel. And the hostel, of course, has no warm water, but it has a shower. And I remember just standing there, and there was no hesitation about the cold water uh, as far as, oh, it's so cold, I have to get in and out. I remember standing there just luxuriating yeah, in yeah. the cold shower, just so thankful to have uh, a, a shower. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> how, it, cold, how cold can the water be in Nicaragua <laughs> in the first place?
0: It felt cold to me. I was a little <laughs> bit... Uh, I was a weakling at that time. Uh, not that cold. But it was just... I, I was struck by how in one week... I had gone from, I cannot believe how cold this shower is, this is the worst experience in my life, to standing there luxuriating in the the cold water, and not even worrying about the fact that there was no hot water. And it was a lesson to me that I've tried to apply since then, to always test myself and challenge myself and expose myself to extreme circumstances so that I am a resilient, flexible person, because I'm convinced it's much less about the external circumstances and much more about the character of the person.
1: Well, I'm reading Fatah right now by Thor Heyerdahl, the story of his early days in the Marquesas with his wife. Um, they, they moved from uh, Norway to uh, the Marquesas and lived in uh, Fatuhiva. And boy, when you read what they went through, you realize, holy mackerel, you can do anything. You know, it's, it's a very a very inspiring book written back in, well, it was written in the 70s, but it tells the story of his time in the 30s. And Fatuhiva very inspirational.
0: Two final questions for you. I recognize that you said that the same percentage of people are, uh, are interested in living the kind of lifestyle. Have you seen, though, have you seen an improvement in the technology oh, being yeah, developed?
1: Definitely, particularly in things like solar. As a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> thanks to the Chinese uh, and uh, who is it? maybe Musk, uh, the price of photovoltaic, panels has come way way down now so uh it's very much cheaper per uh per peak watt than it was when we started out. We you know solar is good because you can add on to it incrementally as you can afford it, you can add another couple of panels on for example right. as opposed to wind where you're in, in for the whole thing at once. But uh so so solar cells are better, they're cheaper. That's a good thing. Uh battery technology has been slow to improve but is slowly getting better the equipment that goes along with the photovoltaic system, the Outback charge controllers, the trace equipment. I mean, our trace inverter is still working perfectly after 30 years, uh, so it's good stuff. But, uh, yeah, equipment has improved a lot, and I think the cost has come down, uh, particularly on photovoltaic panels. So there are improvements that have been made.
0: What I'm hoping is that we can have a lot more innovation in the technology. And i th- what's interesting to me is... I. In many young people that I know who are not pursuing any kind of lifestyle that would be a, you know, any kind of back to the land lifestyle, they're not crunchy, they're not hippie, they're not pursuing any of that. They're living a mainstream, uh, mainstream urban lifestyle. And yet, I, many of my friends enjoy researching some of the technology that is available just simply through YouTube. And I know. Me, I do that and I, I go on YouTube and I find all these interesting technologies. When I find somebody who's built a, a, a hot water, uh, you know, has built a rocket stove uh, to heat a. A barrel of water, and they've built the whole thing with $30 worth of parts, mm-hmm. but they build an amazingly efficient hot water heater. And then I look at that and I say, that is amazing, but yet look how if we can focus some engineering technology on that, uh, whether it's something you know as well known as a rocket mass heater or something like that, or whether it's some of the earth-sheltered technology that you talk about, whether it's solar design technology, whether it's food production technology, things like that. If we can focus the the engineering and the innovation on these areas. What an amazing growth we can have uh, over the, the coming decades. And it doesn't well, seem to make sense to me that y- we can learn from past technology, but we shouldn't necessarily just be trying to to uh, copy the lifestyle from the 1830s. Let's take the right. good things and make them better.
1: The, the really big difference between now and 40 years ago is the access to information and equipment. Uh, Forty years ago, when Jackie and I started out, photovoltaics were things that went on spaceships, right? And uh, you didn't have books to tell you how to build cordwood masonry or sheltered housing or any of these things, cob and all the rest. There was no such a thing. So we're uh, at it, the, the people who want to pursue this lifestyle today are at a great advantage because there's so much available stuff. But it still hasn't changed the um, the uh, impetus. We we haven't reached that critical mass yet. Whether we will or not, I I don't know. But the information is there.
0: Well, when you got guys like me, traditionally trained financial planners, talking about this as a viable financial planning option, I think it it can and I I look at it from a financial perspective and I say if you can have a debt free house and that house can cost you in northern Maine, looking at your numbers here, sixteen so let's call it eighteen hundred dollars a year to run your utility costs. So eighteen hundred dollars a year plus taxes, no mortgage. That's a relatively low lifestyle oh, yes. cost.
1: That's right. Because that means now it compounds. Because now it means you can, you can earn less to take care of the, what right. Pharaoh calls the necessaries of life. And when you earn less, it puts you in a, in a lesser tax bracket, too. Right. So there's a savings on that as well. Right. Uh, you know, uh, my father said that if somebody makes $100,000 a year, but they spend $110,000 a year, they're poor. But if a man makes nine thousand, makes ten thousand dollars a year, and spends nine thousand a year, he's rich. Right, and that's the one thing I've never forgotten. And uh, that's how you. And he also said, you never go broke taking a profit. And these two things are very, very closely related to each other. Um, we've tried to live that way all our lives: you spend less than you earn.
0: People have this goal of having their mortgage paid off because of the peace that that's going to bring them in their in their life when they have their mortgage paid off. But the challenge is that if I were to have my mortgage paid off in the house that I live right now, the my mortgage payment is total, including taxes and insurance, is about twelve hundred and fifty dollars a month. The problem is that only about I think it's what seven eight hundred dollars of that is. Uh, principal and interest payments. So even if I did have my mortgage paid off, I've still got a three to $4,000 a year tax bill, um, property tax bill. I still have anywhere from... Uh, I've got an insurance bill if I'm going to insure my property. And because I didn't build it myself and it's such a, a large dollar figure as compared to something that I could build and repair myself, property insurance is largely necessary. Then you took a look on that and my house is so horribly energy inefficient. That my electric electrical cost, or oh, you know this last summer, uh, averaged between two to as high as 280 dollars per month. Wow. That is a massive cost on a monthly basis to, to support. So what happens is that many people are stuck in this lifestyle, where they come to me as a financial planner, and even with a paid-off mortgage. Which is supposed to be this uh, utopia? I have a paid-off mortgage. I finally own my house. The American dream. Well, no, you don't, because you still have all these other costs. And yeah, we just wiped out
1: fourteen thousand dollars a year. Better off though.
0: (laughs) You are, but you still have a massive still amount of amount of other costs. So I look at it and I say, yes, the mortgage is important, but what people I think what we have this traditional idea of. Which, which, in, which pervades our culture, is that in the past, the mortgage was the biggest cost. You had lower utility costs, you had lower tax burden, you had lower, just basically lower costs. So when people were thinking of the mortgage, they were thinking of those all-inclusive costs. And the only way I know how to do that is to pursue strategies like yours or to accumulate enough money where you can comfortably fund the expenses. And ideally, it's both of them. So investing in insulation in my house is a very high priority for me because I've got to lower That electrical bill, uh, and that's and and people should consider all of these facets of the strategies. Mm -hmm. Do you plan to ever retire?
1: We get asked that question every few years, and every few years we say we get that asked that question every few years, and (laughs) so you know. Here is the thing: we enjoy our work. We enjoy working with these young, enthusiastic people, and not necessarily young. Sometimes older people, too, are coming and making a life change, and they're enthusiastic. They're where we were 40 years ago, desperately seeking this information. And we, we bounce off of that. We, we just, um, it brings us alive to, to see ourselves 40 years ago and, and have the information that we can share with these people. So uh, first, you must enjoy your work. And we enjoy our work, and it 's a vehicle for travel all over the world we 're hoping to do um, workshops in ecuador we just we did some couch surfing in Ecuador last year, and we met some people not two different people who'd like to have us do quarter workshops in ecuador so um that 's a chance to to travel and see some parts of the world we haven 't seen uh, before either out in the country so yeah, we really enjoy it and can 't see any reason to retire because we enjoy it we 're probably not working as hard or as long as we used to, but uh uh, retirement's not on the uh, cards right now. As a matter of fact, Jackie and I are hosting the fifth Continental Cordwood Conference next July. Uh, the first one was held here in 94 and there have been three since. So about every five years there's a Continental Cordwood Conference and this will be a world Continental Cordwood Conference because uh, we expect to have people from all over the world here sharing and uh, innovations in cordwood masonry. So that's a lot of work to organize a conference like that. So That's what we're working on over this winter. Uh, and everybody will be assembling here in July probably 100 to 200 people.
0: I would ask you not to retire cuz a you're going to get old if you retire and that would be bad. Uh, but b I want to bring my kids to your workshops and uh teach them the skills in the future of how to actually do some of these building methods.
1: Well you uh, should come you should come yourself.
0: I will. I, I would like to. Yeah, I can't see uh if I can if in if if in some if i were willing to move out of west palm beach in the future uh i would uh make my own education in the practical hands on of actually doing some of this stuff uh a very high priority and i may reach that at some point you never know but i uh, at the moment that's my that's the primary thing that's that's affecting me but i do want to as i build more margin into my life i actually want to learn some of these skills i want to learn uh and come and do some of the workshops and and my my hope is i'm going to do it with my kids as a kind of a family uh a family event yeah Rob, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. It's been fun. And now I want to actually ask you one bonus question, which I'm going to put at the end of the interview. Are you still moving big, heavy rocks?
1: Oh, yes. Um, Yes, in fact, in about a week's time, we're going down to look at the Sophia Project, which is a a 50-ton stone, 32 foot 5 inches long. It's uh, uh, lying in the field uh, at the Center for Symbolic Studies in New Paltz and I'm project director to uh, demonstrate transporting and erecting uh, this uh, Sophia by hand. The project's dragged on too long, and we're short of funds right now to get the necessary wooden... We See, we want to limit ourselves to equipment that the Neolithic people would have had available 5,000 years ago. That requires a lot of heavy timbers, ropes, uh, that sort of thing. So um, Michael Barnes, who did the original NOVA series on... Uh, Stonehenge and the obelisks and the Pyramids. He's on board trying to find a producer that's going like like Mega Movers, for example, to uh, to do a program about this and uh, uh, maybe pony up some money. We need around $10,000 for the various equipment that we need to, to, to do this. So yeah, it's, it's still alive, but the project has dragged on way too long. I'm hoping in a week's time I'll have a little bit more information on that.
0: Are you guys getting to the point where you can actually, like, you can figure out how the people in the past have moved the massive... Oh,
1: absolutely. Uh, we have successfully uh, transported and erected a 20-ton stone here at Earthwood. So Sophia is just the next step up from that. We're moving from the 20 to the 55-ton stone. Um, uh, the ancient people were moving stones, there, there's, a, there's a standing stone, well, it stood for 5,000 years in France, called the Grand Menhir Brise. It finally fell down about 18, the year eighteen hundred seventeen ninety nine I think it fell down and broke into four pieces. That was a 350-ton stone
2: wow. that they
1: transported at least a half a mile from the quarry and stood it up. 350 tons. Now, if if we do, if we get Sophia, I shouldn't say if when we get Sophia up, it will be one seventh of the way to what the Neolithic people were doing in France 5,000 years ago with no hard metals, just wood and rope available to them.
2: Wow wow
1: yeah. so it's it's exciting stuff that's kind of our passion uh that that also takes us around the world too we've done stone workshops and in, in other parts of the world so uh yeah it's really keep
0: it really up exciting. i think that's a, that's a cool hobby to have and uh, i'm interested it's, i haven't actually learned empowering.
1: anything it's very empowering when you actually you know, we moved to uh, julie's 10, there's our 20 ton stone here at Earthwood. And we could always um, raise, we we could transport, raise, and erect uh, uh, Julie Stainer with no more than 16 people. That means each of us is responsible for one and a quarter tons. Wow. Using only uh, wooden equipment. Wow. It's a great, and you're not struggling. You're using your weight, not your strength, just your, your body weight and your brain.
0: I'm going to need to spend some time on YouTube and see how you guys are doing doing some of that because I don't even know where you start. I, I haven't researched it. I just heard about it and read about it on your site. And well, I thought, my
1: major, my major book is uh, the biggest book, that is to say the one I'm most proud of. Uh, if you like Mortgage Free, you'll love Stone Circles. It's a 380-page book. It took a couple of years of my life to research and, and do that. And, of course, a lot of it's backed by our own experimentations here. Jackie and I, in our 60s, we love to just... Uh, We love to just go out and move a half-ton stone in the garden just for the fun of it.
0: (laughs) You guys are oddballs, you know? (laughs) I resemble that remark. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Rob, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Pretty cool, huh? (laughs) I wish many, many more people would follow Rob's uh, Rob's path. Uh, I really do. I think it's just an awesome not for everyone. I mean, clearly he says that even in the the interview. And I don't think it's for everyone. Uh, But what a much different way of approaching life if we could just simply build our own houses that are cheap, but are well built. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes sitting here staring at society saying, why is it that our houses have to cost so much? And why is it that the ones that cost so much are so stupidly inefficient? You would think that in 2014, we could do a little bit better. And I know in 2014, we can do a little bit better. So I'm doing my best on my end to improve my situation. I hope that each and every one of you listening to today's show is doing the best on your end to improve your situation. And hopefully many of you, maybe you come from an engineering background and we can together figure out some better engineering for all of our climates and locations and we can build housing that is Uh, More efficient, less expensive, more comfortable, more beautiful, less toxic, just healthier in every way for us as individuals and our individual lives, and also for uh, our societies, our communities, for the earth we live in. Uh, I wish we could, I really think we got, we have, we can make some major progress here. This is some of that low hanging fruit. And if more and more more of us will follow Rob's uh, plan and Get to the place where the regulations don't get in the way. I think we can continue to make some major prog- progress. So hope you enjoyed today's show. Thank you so much. If you're interested in today's show notes, come to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash 81. You'll find all the show notes for today's show. Let, drop me a note. Let me know how you, if you like this kind of thing. And if you know other people that have inspirational stories like this, I'd love to bring them on the show. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on iTunes or on Stitcher or wherever you listen. We're here every day, Monday through Friday. Thanks for listening